All right, Alexander, let's uh, talk about the Russian economy. And uh, this is a good time to talk about the Russian economy because there's all kinds of information about the Russian economy, oil, gas. Uh, some analysts are saying the, the economy is, is faltering. Uh, the IMF says the Russian economy is going, is going to return to growth. A lot of different contradicting uh, narratives out there, but I think you've, you've always had your pulse on the real situation with regards to the Russian economy and what is going on. We also have some news from OPEC Plus and from, uh, from Russia with regards to oil production. But before we get into the, uh, the discussion on the economy, we just had some breaking news, so we don't have much information, but we had some breaking news about the resignation of the Moldovan uh, government. And that allegedly this is coming from various sources, though I don't want to say it's coming from official Moldovan or Romanian sources. I don't want to say that just yet. Maybe it turns out that this is a claim that they're making. But there are sources that say that the Russian missiles that were fired this morning towards Ukraine flew over the airspace of Moldova and Romania. I actually do think that Moldova may have called in the Russian ambassador in Moldova. I'm not... I'm not quite 100% on that. I think I, I kind of glanced over it as I was looking through my, my Telegram feed. Uh, we, we are getting denials about the trajectory of the missiles as well, that they crossed over the airspace. It is a suspicious story, given what Zelensky said yesterday in uh, the European Parliament. Anyway, uh, just five minutes, your initial thoughts on, yeah. on the story, and then just uh, go straight into the Russian uh, economy. I mean, the first thing to say is that there has been a long festering political crisis in Moldova, which goes back many, many years. There's a, 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 a very strong, very vocal, very angry, very well-organized pro-Western uh, group of group in Moldova. And there are also a large number of people who support instead an alignment of Moldova with Russia. And there's been this push and pull. And to a certain extent, the Western pro-Western position has been more successful in recent years. But I suspect that's partly been because in recent elections, the Moldova, uh, 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 the effect of those recent elections has been, I would say distorted, but it's been affected by the fact that an awful lot of Moldovans who live in the West have been voting in these elections. They're entitled to do so. And it's their votes which have perhaps resulted in pro-Western po politicians like President Sandu coming to power, despite the fact that arguably they're not that popular, or at least they don't have majority support within Moldova itself. So there are those tensions. And these tensions have been exacerbated by a deteriorating economic situation. And that's been an ongoing matter throughout the whole year. Living standards are falling. There's a a lot of people are blaming the Moldovan government, President Sandu, uh, for this. There's been that has exacerbated these political tensions, and now the pro-Western government, Maria Sandu's government, the government rather that she appointed, she remains president, has been forced to resign, and there's talk about some kind of a reorganisation of the government. Now, that is, in my opinion, by far the big story here. The fact that there is a political crisis, that political crisis has now grown 
to the point where the government of Moldova has been forced to resign. There have been protests. There's uh, uh, particular parties that are growing in strength in Moldova, which, well, the West calls them pro-Russian parties. I'm not going to go that far, but anyway, they want to distance Moldova from the very strong pro-Ukrainian line that's been taken. So that, it seems to me, is the big story. So what happens yesterday, or the day before yesterday, is that Zelensky comes along. He's aware that this political crisis in Moldova is taking place. Moldova is an important ally for Ukraine. You know, think you know, goods, oil, gas, all that kind of thing, passed to some extent to Ukraine via Moldova. I suspect weapons too, though I'm sure that will be denied. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to imply that this political crisis is Russian confected. So we have this thing that the Russians are now targeting Moldova. And we see the follow up with this story that Russian missiles overflew Moldova before they struck Ukraine, violating Moldovan airspace. And I think the intention that's been behind all of this is to try to drag the West in, drag is perhaps the wrong word, to encourage the West to interfere more actively in Moldovan politics on the side of the pro-Western, pro-Ukrainian politicians there who are losing ground by trying to imply that this whole thing is somehow connected to the Russians and that, you know, the Russians are putting all this pressure on Moldova, they're engineering a crisis in Moldova itself, they're launching missiles across Moldova, they're doing all the, all these sort of things. So I think this is what we're seeing. The missile story, I think, is a distraction from the real one, and the real one is an internal one, and the internal one is that Sandu has never been as popular in Moldova as some people perhaps assume, and her government is vis visibly failing as the economic crisis in Moldova deepens. So that, I think, is the real story there. Now, whether the West will allow Moldova to change course, that's a completely different matter. I mean, you know, we could very well be seeing the, all these stories that we're hearing now, as uh, you know, they, they may presage much more active Western interference to keep Moldova on, in, in line. But it's the political crisis within Moldova itself that is driving these, ev these events. That's my own view. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Absolutely. Two, two narratives, but they're being manipulated and used for, for the outcome to try and, and broaden the war out. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, let's, uh, let's shift gears then and talk about the Russian economy. Mm. Right. Well, we've had that, in, that important report from the International Monetary Fund. Russia looks like, likely to achieve economic growth this year. And by the way, the International Monetary Fund was more optimistic about Russia's growth trajectory this year than the Russian government itself was. I mean, the Russian government was talking about uh, uh, a 1% contraction. Largely, it must be said, a statistical thing, because um, growth was very high 
in the first few months of 2022. So that would make mean that overall growth might look like it was falling, even though over most of the year it was actually expanding. But anyway, the International Monetary Fund has come out and said, we think there's going to be growth. So inevitably, there's been pushback. And there was an article about a couple of days ago in Bloomberg, which highlighted the fact that the Russian budget was $25 billion in deficit in January, which it was. No question about that. It definitely was. And again, all sorts of flesh creeping talk. Russia's about to run out of money. It's facing a major financial crisis. <laughs> the country's about to collapse. The growth uh, is a mirage. The sanctions are working. One would have thought that by now, <laughs> people would be a little bit more careful about this kind of thing. But, you know, they come up with it every so often. Now, the reason there was a deficit in January is twofold. Firstly, there was a fall in oil prices. This isn't related to the price caps. There has been a general fall in oil prices, and that has reduced receipts that the Russian government has also uh, has had from the oil and gas companies. There's also, and this is a longer running problem, been a fall in receipts, income tax and value added tax receipts. So there's been a certain reduction in income from there. And that, by the way, is largely the product of uh, a collapse in demand that took place last year. But that all seems to be running its course now. So probably we're going to see income tax and VAT receipts grow. And we'll talk about oil prices in a moment. But that was only part of the reason that there was a deficit. The big reason that there was a deficit in January was because in the last quarter of 2022 and in the first month of 2023, January, government spending in Russia has been very high. Now, the reason it's been very high is twofold. Firstly, undoubtedly, the Russians have been pouring money into their military industrial complex. They've been building an awful lot more weapons, <laughs> tanks, aircraft, missiles, that kind of thing. But they've also, and this is perhaps in some ways been the bigger cause, they've also been putting money into people's pockets. They've, in other words, they've been increasing pensions, increasing welfare payments, providing support for people in order to overcome that problem that I was talking about before, which was the collapse in demand that took place last year. So these came together in a conjunction and they resulted in a, de in a deficit in January. It is inconsequential. A budget is for a year, not for one month. If you look at the British budget, if you look at the American budget, you know, they vary hugely from month to month. It, it really isn't a big problem. Russia has enormous reserves. Its reserves have actually been growing. It's been running an even bigger trade surplus last year than the year before. It's awash with money. It can easily cover this deficit for one month. 
And all the indications are that as the month, the year progresses, this deficit will fall. Probably, overall, Russia will end up with a deficit of some sort for the whole of 2023. But it is easily covered. It is easily affordable. Russia has just carried out two more bond sales, successful bond sales on its own financial market. It sold some gold. It sold some Chinese RMB. It can, uh, there's talk about it negotiating a a windfall uh, loan from some of the big companies that made lots of money last year from higher oil prices. They will have no problem covering this. It really isn't a story. What happens is every so often, Bloomberg especially, comes up with something. It tries to make out that this is a big deal. It is not a big deal. And I think people need to understand that. And they need to start to stop thinking about, stop talking in this way. If you track what Russian officials have been saying themselves over the last few weeks, They are becoming more optimistic about the economy, not less. And they are revising their growth figures upwards. And they're gradually starting to bring them into line with the IMF report. They're starting at people like Belusov, the man in overall charge of the Russian economy, other officials from the finance ministry. They're also starting to say that the predictions of a 1% contraction that they were making a few months ago. Probably wrong. And it's highly likely that Russia will achieve growth this year. And inflation figures also. Small uptick in inflation, very small. Product again of the high spending that the Russian government has been doing. But the expectation is that that will fall. And the underlying rate of inflation anyway is probably around 5% now. So nothing, you know, nothing there that really should alarm or dismay anybody. And last but not least, you mentioned oil production. Oil production uh, has remained stable. It remains stable right through January. It's still stable in February, apparently. It's about, you know, 10 billion uh, barrels a day. Uh, the government, the Russian government has said that they might cut it by around half a bit, half a million barrels a day in March, um, basically to support oil prices. Um, I think we're probably going to see that this is going to be a step that it's going to be coordinated with OPEC plus as well. Um, again, a sign that there's problems in the energy markets, perhaps an oversupply at the moment. I don't think it's any kind of big deal at all. Half a million out of a 10 million barrels a day production really isn't a big deal. Uh, what question with regards to the economy? Why, why do you think that Bloomberg, the collective West media, why do you think they run with these stories every now and then? What's the purpose? Well, I, I, I think, well, first of all, there's an awful lot, you know, wishful thinking. I mean, people want to cling on to all sorts of beliefs that, well, you know, hasn't worked yet, but, you know, it's about to work. And the Russian figures anyway are all smoke and mirrors. But in this instance, I mean, I asked you this question specifically in this instance as well. Sorry to interrupt, but because you said the IMF itself has said things are going going well for for the Russian economy. That's the part that I'm asking you the why. Why? Well, 
it's partly when the IMF for that is coming re- out yeah. and saying yeah yeah it, it's partly for that reason of course you see because the IMF has come up and said these things are looking up for Russia Bloomberg has to come out and say well actually you know that their things are looking bad we're going to take out of context one month's budget figures and that's going to somehow you know prove that you know the you know, forget about what the IMF saying this is the real picture when it's not the real picture i mean you look at the growth budget statistic budget dynamics across a year as a whole but of course the reason they're doing that is that they have to hold the line on sanctions <laughs> sanctions are pretty much hit the buffers even the eu is now coming around saying that we've sanctioned practically everything that we possibly can there's nothing more left to sanction but there are growing people who say well look these sanctions are not working there's more reports there was a big article i read somewhere today sanctions are not working they're only hurting us they're not hurting the russians maybe the time has come to start pulling back on sanctions. And by the way, to some extent, that's already happening because we're now getting all these kind of reports about the oil price caps and the gas price caps. The oil price cap, they're now saying, look, the Russians sell their oil to India or China or wherever, and then that oil gets mixed up with oil from another place, then we'll buy it at any price. Now, what proportion? So, you know, if you have 99% Russian oil and you put in 1%, you know, Saudi oil, does that mean that it's not covered by the oil price cap? I'm sure there's an answer to this question, but I don't know what it is. But the EU is itself legalizing grey schemes. They're actually undermining their own caps, which tells you that they don't really believe in them. Now, people who are fervid supporters of the sanctions they must be seeing this they must be worried about this people in you know bloomberg i presume but you know other people in the us government are our old friends the neocons they must be worried about the fact that with russia in growth next year there's going to be more and more demands to sort of reverse sanctions there's going to be backsliding so you come out pluck one set of budget figures out of uh, you know out of nowhere you know talk them up saying well you know we must keep the sanctions because actually they're really working you know we say they are of course they are they absolutely are we so we must keep them going give it a few more months give it a few more weeks you will see the proof and they'll go on doing that and they'll be insisting on it week after week month after month we're going to get more and more st- stories like the one in bloomberg focusing as i said on the one month uh, uh, budget figures so that's that's i'm afraid something we've got to be used to get used to but we mustn't let ourselves uh, you know run away with these things and get you know fixate on them they're not consequential it's the underlying growth price dynamics in the economy that are telling their story. The IMF is reading them. The Russian government is starting to adjust to them. And that's what we're seeing happen. By the way, on the topic of the sanctions, there was an astonishing story. And by the way, it's also in Bloomberg. Bloomberg clearly has different people writing different things or these different voices (laughs) ordering them about the 
original big super sanctions, the uh, seizure or rather the freezing of the Russian central bank's reserves that took place last year. If you remember, $300 billion of reserves we were told had been frozen. It turns out that only $36 billion of reserves, of the central bank's reserves, have been identified and found. So what's happened to all the others? You know, something like you know, over $250 billion of reserves. Apparently, they can't be located. Nobody knows where they are. I'm going to say where they are. They went back to Russia. The Russians have laundered them because they've been selling dollars and euros um, in every way they possibly can, buying some of their own currency, rubles, buying RMB. Uh, um, those reserves are no longer there. And that whole operation <laughs> just to freeze and seize the Russian central bank's reserves, you know, the shock and awe sanctions, the most important sanctions of all, it failed. <laughs> it only hit, it only captured $36 billion out of the $300 billion they were talking about. And by the way, that means if they really were thinking of you know, using all those $300 billion to send to Ukraine, well, they're, they're just not there anymore, which probably explains why they're now coming after the personal assets of uh, uh, um, oligarchs and business people who were unwise enough to keep their money in the West. That's why they're so obsessed with uh, seizing these assets, unfreezing them and seizing them. I mean, Finland, Estonia, Germany, the US, it seems like they've they've sped up the whole process of trying to find the loopholes, the legal loopholes to, to get this done because the money's being moved out or has already been moved out and this is a big L for them. I mean, this explains everything. Because I've been wondering over the past couple of weeks, why are they so obsessed all of a sudden with with unfreezing the assets and, and getting them to reconstruction, right? To getting them to Ukraine. And this explains it because they're starting to realize you know, the, the, the money's gone. Let's let's yes. look for it. Let's find it. They're moving it out. Let's stop it. They're, they're panicking. It, if, if this comes out, I mean, it's come out, but if this gets reported on, I mean, we're reporting on it, but if this gets reported on, along with the narrative that the sanctions have failed, people should be fired, right? I mean, oh, this has been one big failed policy, a, a catastrophic failed policy, which also explains why there's such a push to get a 10th sanctions package at any cost. I mean, Ursula is, is, is coming out and saying we're going to sanction exports. And she, no one really knows what exactly. And then she's like, we're going to sanction Putin's propagandists. I mean, this is like, they really are panicking because it's, it's kind of, it's the scenario where if I don't get a 10th sanctions package and I don't keep this thing going, then, you know, people are going to are going to say, well, what what the hell was all yeah. of this for? Yeah, well, you're absolutely correct. That's exactly what it is. You keep this train on the road indefinitely because you don't want people to ask questions. You don't want people to stop and think and say, well, has this actually worked? Notice, I mean, you're absolutely right. This story about the central bank reserves. Well, it's in Bloomberg. But how many people read Bloomberg? Well, you know. People who are in the finance world read Bloomberg, but the, the general public in 
the West doesn't read Bloomberg. It doesn't appear in big mainstream media. You're not going to see that this is the lead story, you know, in MSNBC or someplace like that where people might notice it. The New York Times doesn't have it as this headline story. So most people don't know these things. And there is a desire to stop them knowing these things. Because, of course, if people did find out that the sanctions were a complete failure and that they've actually caused more damage to Western economies than they have to the Russians, and that we're even creating grey schemes now to keep Russian oil moving in our direction, uh, circumventing our own price caps. We're even reduced to, you know, things like that. Well, people might ask questions and they might ask, well, how were, how were these decisions made? And they might find out that, for example, the decision to freeze the Russian central bank's reserves was done contrary to the advice of the Fed. The Fed was actually cut out of the decision-making process. <laughs> the, you know, the New York banks, the European banks, they counseled against it. They said, don't cut off Russian banks from SWIFT. It's not going to have the effect you think it will. The Russians have their own alternative systems, messaging systems. All will meet. All it will do is it will mean we will lose track of Russian financial flows, which is precisely, of course, what's happened, and encourage the Russians to start expanding their messaging system to include more and more countries, and they're doing that too. They're now looking to integrate Iran into their own messaging system. I, I've been told that Turkey is next on the list, by the way. So, you know, anyway, all of those things. So people would, if people found out how these decisions were made, that the experts were not consulted, were cut out of the decision-making pro process to the extent that their advice was sought, that advice was ignored. Well, people who've lost their jobs, people whose businesses have failed, and I know people like that, by the way, they're not going to be pleased. And they might start asking questions about the political leaders who got them there. And that's why, one reason why, you have these articles appearing from time to time and, you know, regular as clockwork. Well, Russia, <laughs> about to run out of money. Budget deficit, they ran a $25 billion budget deficit in January. That means their economy's about to crash. Those kind of stories. I got a final question. Why isn't there an EU leader? They're having a summit right now outside of Orban. Forget Orban. How come there's not another EU leader to come out and say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine sanctions packages. It's only hurt us enough. Stop. Yes. Well, I, I'm why? going to make it. I, well, why? I mean, there are, well, that, that, that is an extraordinarily good question. I, there are some EU leaders who are pretty outspoken. The president of Croatia is. I, I get the sense that the Austrian government, which, by the way, let's be very clear about that. This particular Austrian government, it was leveraged into power in a very, very shady way. I mean, the way in which Sebastian Kurz's co original coalition was destroyed and then the way in which he was brought down begs many questions 
And of course, we saw the same thing happen late afterwards in the Czech Republic as well. I mean, I'm not going to go into the details of that. But even this Austrian government is now having doubts. They're uh, increasingly working with Orban and with Hungary. But none of them yet are prepared to stand up against this um, runaway train, in the, you know, stand in the way of this runaway train, which is this sanctions momentum. And I can't help but think it's ultimately because they're scared. I mean, they, they still understand, they still feel that the momentum is too strong for them to resist. They don't want to take on the United States. They don't want to take on the British, the Germans and the French. And in the, within the EU, the British, the Germans and the French, and I'm, have, I'm afraid with Maloney now, the Italians as well. So eventually something will snap. Perhaps we should look at Germany, where I think there is increasing um, unhappiness about where we're going. I mean, there's now strong reports that the relationship between Schultz and Baerbock has completely broken down. Um, but, uh, uh, so this is about that people are talking about tank deliveries rather than sanctions. But the talk is that Schultz and Baerbock are not even on speaking terms anymore. But one sense is that if we're going to get a breaking point, we're going to see a breaking point, it will probably eventually have to be in Germany. Because I'm sorry to say this, um, it's the only place where uh, the political strength exists to, to stop this train in its tracks. At the moment, that's not happening. And, you know, we might have to wait a very long time. And the damage that will be done in the meantime will be incalculable. To Germany as to well. To Germany. Most and damage is being done to, 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 to all the, the countries most... of the EU, yeah, but to Germany yes. specifically. Yes, yes. But, you know, Austria, Austria is a bellwether in a way. I mean, it, it, it is the fact that the Austrians are clearly now having doubts, given that Austria is so close to Germany in so many respects. And, and, and you know, German Austrian politicians are very close to German politicians. So the fact that the Austrians are now starting to publicly express doubts is perhaps a sign that, you know, there is a shift starting to happen in Germany. It's going to take a very, very long time in Germany for that to um, have any significant effect, if it ever does. But anyway, we'll just have to see. All right. TheDuran.Locals.com. We are on Rockfin as well. And go to the Duran shop. 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. Take care.